Marathon Medic podcast. My name's Amy and I'm a junior doctor and running coach with an interest in sports medicine. On this episode of the podcast, Running and Hormone Health, I'm chatting to Dr. Izzy Smith. Izzy is an endocrinologist with a specific interest in sports endocrinology and even more importantly, she's a very passionate runner. We'll be discussing the impact of stress on training load, relative energy deficiency in sport and bone health. Sports endocrinology is such a huge topic and it's not something we could ever do justice in a single podcast episode, but hopefully this conversation will be a useful introduction into the relationship between exercise and just some of our many hormones. So hi Izzy, thank you so much for taking the time out and joining me. Um, I think this is my longest distance recording because you're in Australia right now. So would you mind just sharing with everyone a little bit about yourself? Yes, you're right, Amy. I think we're about exactly 12 hours different. So thanks for waking up early for me. Um, so about me, I you might hear from my accent, I'm Australian. I am a doctor from Sydney, but I'm currently working in our capital, Canberra. I'm an endocrinology registrar, having about one to two years to finish off the rest of my training, and my passion is sports endocrinology. So that is looking at optimising hormone health for optimal sporting performance. I'm also really passionate about women's health and educating women about their bodies, their menstrual cycles, and other conditions that affect women, and I'm a mad keen runner myself. I love trail running, triathlon, anything outdoorsy. So sports endocrinology is a great way for me to combine my passions of people in sport and medicine. And how did you actually, um, I guess, discover that specialty? Because I think sports endocrinology possibly is quite niche. I know I know here it's not something I've heard of too much. Maybe it's something that's more common in Australia. How did you find that career path? It's very niche and it's probably more common in the UK than Australia. I don't know if I'd exactly say it's a specialty on its own. It's more that endocrinologists sometimes work, work with sports people. But it was a bit of a journey, to be honest. I finished, I don't exactly know how training works in the UK, but I think it's similar. We do our, I think you call it the MRCP or? Yes. Yes. Um, so I did mine. Previously, I thought I might do hematology. Just wasn't right for me because I was so passionate about sports. I thought about doing sports medicine as a pathway. However, I'd done so much training and study and I'm such a physiology nerd and I wanted to do the internal medical pathway. I'm also really passionate about lifestyle medicine, exercise, nutrition, and that doctors could be much better at advocating for that in their patients. So I thought I would do endocrinology. And in terms of sports endocrinology, it's, yeah, individual endocrinologists kind of specialize in it, but I think it's a growing field in sports because I think we have really good research on how to train people in terms of your loading and different types of training in terms of tempo and low intensity. So I think the next big thing in sports will be maximizing recovery and that's where our hormones are very important. So I think it's I'm kind of making it my own niche. There's no one in Australia that's really specializing in it and yeah I think that's what I want to be doing. There's some great doctors in the UK and also in the States that are making a specialty um, and they've really inspired me. Nikki Kay is one in the UK which you might have heard of. Okay that's really interesting and I think it's I think sports medicine in general is a growing field so finding these different uh, elements of it is really important too. In terms of your own kind of running journey when did you start running and have you got anything on the table at the moment because I think Australia is a little bit more opened up than we are over here. Yes yeah, so I 
I was a gymnast when I was young and I took that very seriously. I trained every day on the weekends. Um, and then when I was at really at university, I started running as a stress relief. And then I think it was in my third year of uni, I trained for a big half marathon up a mountain in the town I live in called Hobart. And the event's called the Point to Pinnacle. And I came 19th, which was pretty good because it was a very famous event and lots of people came and I'd never really run before. And that's what sparked the passion in me. And I joined a run club and I just loved the community. I loved the mental escape. I loved that it was just for me. I wasn't competing against anyone else. And I guess I loved the resilience I built mentally in running that I could then apply to other aspects of my life. Um, So that's where it started. I'll be totally honest, being a doctor and trying to keep up high volume of training intensity is pretty hard. I don't think I'm as good as I was when I was a medical student, Um, but now I still love it just as much and it's the community and the getting outside. In terms of next events, I've got a half Ironman in a few months. I got a stress fracture a couple of years ago and I did the, you know, horrendous things that runners say they'll never do and I actually started to enjoy swimming. So (laughs) I started swimming and I'm doing half Ironman in May and I've also got a ultra trail marathon, a 50K ultra um, around the same time as well. That sounds very similar to to my experience as well. I had a recent injury and got really into swimming. So I think triathlons could be on the cards soon. Um, best of luck with all of that. Um, so we're going to chat about, as you mentioned, your kind of niche specialty of hormones and the role they play in sports and exercise. So I think a, a good starting point would just be to clarify exactly what a hormone is and what we mean when we're talking about hormones. That's a great question, Amy, because we hear so much about hormones and so-called resetting them or balancing them without even talking about the basics. So essentially a hormone is a signaling molecule in our body which is released from an endocrine organ. We have lots of different endocrine organs. You might have heard of the thyroid, the pancreas, the pituitary, the adrenal glands. They're all endocrine organs and they release a hormone which travels through the bloodstream, then go and tell a different organ to do something. So our fight and flight response, you know, when we're nervous and our heart rate goes up, we feel sweaty, a little bit anxious. That's our brain, our hypothalamus, then sending hormones to our pituitary, which then send hormones to our adrenaline, our adrenal glands to release those stress hormones. So they're essentially our body's way of sending messages from different organs to maintain our homeostasis and other parts of our physiology. So there's obviously kind of lo- loads of hormones throughout the body and we can't possibly um, do this topic justice in, in one podcast, but we'll pick a few areas maybe just to explore a little bit more. And as you mentioned, stress hormones, if we could just chat about that first. So what um, role does exercise play in, in affecting our stress hormones? And I guess vice versa, do our stress hormones affect the way we exercise? Yes, so our stress hormones are classically thought of as our adrenal gland hormones, the ones I mentioned, which is noradrenaline, adrenaline, cortisol, adrenal glands also release a few other hormones, but they're the main ones. And they are responsible for that fight or flight response. We know when we exercise for prolonged periods of time, our cortisol generally goes up. Um, and then when we, you know, we're resting at night, those stress hormones go down. I think When we talk about stress hormones, it's really simplified a little bit too much in, you know, high endurance exercise causes, you know, your stress hormones to go up and then you won't be able to sleep. Like, for example, women in polycystic ovarian syndrome community 
often told they shouldn't do high intensity exercise because of those stress hormones. Um, when we really need to more look at it at an individual basis of how high intensity exercise impacts different people. But essentially, you know, yes, high intensity exercise increases our stress hormones, which isn't a bad thing um, because like anything, it's okay to stress ourselves for short periods of time. It's if it's, you know, prolonged stress. And what is interesting, I guess, to talk about is that psychological stress releases the same hormones as the physical activity. So when we are really, you know, mentally stressed and then we go and, you know, try and go out and do a hard, maybe high-intensity running session, our body has already been under stress all day. So it might not be able to then push as hard because we've already had such a load through our hormones going through the entire day. So, yeah, our bodies, you know, fight or flight response, they do good things, they help bring more blood flow to our muscles, prepare our body for that flight, which you know, a few thousand years ago, it was running away from a, you know, big woolly mammoth that wanted to eat us. Um, and now it's, you know, running a marathon in a PB. So I, I guess in a way, just taking from, from what you've said, our stress hormones can al- almost be thought of as an element to our exercise load. Would that be the correct way of thinking about it? Let's not make it stress hormones. Let's just talk about general stress. <laughs> okay. General um, stress. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, it's, it's a little bit too simplified if we just say it's the stress hormones. Our body can't tell the difference between mental stress or physical stress. You know, all those stress hormones are still acting on every single cell in our body. They've all got receptors for those stress hormones. And when you're under a lot of mental stress, it means that your body just can't tolerate as much of the physical stress. People, if they've had exams, if they're stressed about work, a breakup, they probably notice that they can't push as hard in those high-intensity sessions. And, you know, we've got a lot of evidence that shows mental stress increases your relative perceived effort of exercise. So I guess very simplified is if you're going through a tough time, be kind to yourself and know you're not going to be able to train as hard and that's not you not working it. You know, it's not you taking it easy. It's your physiology. And sometimes you need to, you know, accept you've got to back it off a little bit. And you mentioned that the stress hormones are kind of related to the the time of day. So cortisol, for example, is higher in the mornings um, and therefore exercise might have an impact on sleep. Is there much evidence for that? And is there anything to suggest that we should actually alter when we're doing our high intensity sessions or our easier sessions? They did a good, good study on this, a systematic review a while ago about whether, you know, endurance exercise impacts people's sleep. Essentially, the study said only if you're exercising for more than 60 minutes of endurance activity, you know, a couple of hours before sleep, that it, you know, causes you to have a bad night's sleep. However, I know so many people that will say the opposite. And if they do, you know, a long run at night um, or a high-intensity session, even if it's less than an hour, they can't sleep. So I think a little bit of individual variation is important to recognise. But, you know, you're right. Generally at night, our stress hormones all go down and doing a high-intensity session will impact our sleep. And so, yeah, it's probably wiser to do your endurance exercise in the morning and then do your strength activities at night, which also has other benefits in terms of signalling pathways and adaptions that we know. So I'm going on to a different topic now. But endurance activities can block some of the adaptions from strength training. So it's always better to do your cardio in the morning and then your strength at night. And I'm just wondering, I guess a little bit of personal experience as well from, from both of us in terms of exercising around night shifts. Um, I was just wondering how those night shifts actually affect our 
stress hormones and morning cortisol. And again, whether we should be altering the training that we do around that time, because I'm assuming you'll know far more than me. I'm assuming our hormones are quite impacted during during those weeks that we're on nights. Definitely. Our circadian rhythm, which is our body's natural body clock, and that's all those hormones are impacted by. We have cortisol and testosterone and hormones early in the morning, and then you do night shifts and it just confuses everything. And we have seen people that do night shifts in the long term have higher rates of diabetes, have higher rates of cancer, they have higher rates of you know overall mortality. So the shift work isn't good for us. In terms of advice for people of when they should train around night shifts, I think it is such an individual thing. For me personally, I always train after I wake up because normally I'm someone who on a normal day, I train in the morning. So on a night shift, I sleep and then I train in the evenings, which is, you know, the same Then I go and do my job. And that's what works for me. But so I think everyone will be a little bit different. But this night shifts definitely impact your stress hormones and impact your ability to kind of train it as a at a high level. Yeah, I've certainly found more recently I've actually just stopped doing exercise during my night shifts because they're they're not for too long. And I've just thought actually I'd rather use that as my kind of rest week and just have some time off because I can't cope with doing both. It's it's a hard balance of wanting to look after your well being through exercise and that's how we both look after our well-being and then need to get enough sleep having to eat for me personally I do seven well I've actually finished doing night shifts but when I did in Australia we do seven in a row and then seven off for months at a time so I had to work out how I could train otherwise just my volume would go straight down and I think if you're organized you know you make all your meals um, very methodical have a strict routine on your nights it does make it a lot easier to get the exercise in but also I can completely understand that you would just want to take it as a break so moving on now to um red s which I think has become a bit of a hot topic recently so relative energy deficiency syndrome and it used to be called female athlete triad and I think it's had a bit of a rebranding because we've realized that it's it does affect males as well um would you mind starting off Uh, with explaining what red S is and what it means for the body. As the name says, relative energy deficiency in sport, and it doesn't need to just be in sport, it can happen in non-sporting people, but it's essentially when our body has an energy deficit. So if we're consistently not fueling our body for the work it's doing, it diverts energy from important normal physiological functions such as our bone health, our immune system, and our reproductive system to try and, you know, meet the work that we're doing so we can keep getting to our training sessions. It um, shuts off those functions and in time it gets lots of side effects in terms of the bone health, reproduction, immune health is all kind of compromised. Obviously everyone's energy will vary day to day. So, you know, if you have one day that you're just a little bit under or over, it's not going to matter. It's usually, you know, a few weeks or months that, it will start to have symptoms. And as you said, it used to be called female athlete syndrome and the athlete triad, and it was amenorrhea, disordered eating and bone health. Have we realised, you know, men get this syndrome too. So they have low testosterone, osteopenia, osteoporosis. It's very common in male cyclists, which is a disaster because, you know, cyclists and weak bones, you know, having a crash, that's just catastrophic. So yes, to summarise, it's not many your body's energy needs for the work it's doing and then your body as a result shuts down other important functions and 
Um, I, I guess it's somewhat obvious from the, the name that there's an energy deficiency, so not getting in enough calories effectively for the exercise you're doing. But what are some of the other factors that can contribute to developing red S? Yeah, it's often falsely thought that it's only people with disordered eating. However, it can be really easy to fall into an energy deficiency, especially if you're doing you know, high-volume training and you don't have the benefit of a sports dietitian. Um, other factors that can influence it, so something I discussed before um, when we were offline, I started a new job and I'm working between two different hospitals where I have to walk between them. So I'm doing like 10,000 steps a day. So even though my training volume hasn't gone up, my work, you know, my overall workload has increased significantly. So things like, you know, your work, physiotherapists are a good example. They have a very physically hard job and they're often very sporty. It's actually quite simple in a way what leads to it, um, but I guess the things, the side effects of how people are impacted can be different depending on what sport you do, um, how long it happens for, those type of things. One question I just had about um, calorie intake, does it matter when you have that calorie intake? So, for example, if you do a session um, and you maybe overall haven't fueled very well, but you make sure that you feel well before and after your session or vice versa, does that have any impact or is it we just thinking about the overall calorie input? Essentially, it's your overall calorie input. Maybe if you're fueling for that particular training session, you will be able to, you know, run quite hard. But when you're at night resting and your immune system is underfueled and your bones are underfueled, that's still going to influence things. So I guess potentially, and we do see in reds that some, mainly runners, um, can still often perform at quite a high level um, when they have reds. So some people can train at quite a high level with reds um, for a short period but once it's you know longer once you're getting to years you're going to see a decrease in performance so I've got a little bit off track but essentially yes you could fuel for your training session but no it is your total calories that is important and what are the features that we might see in a female or male athlete that might indicate that they do have a relatively relative energy deficiency so things to look out for at the start often um, increased coughs and colds so you know, being unwell, that, you know, just the common stuff that people get. Um, then, you know, increased perceived effort to training that, you you know, you're training and it just feels a lot harder. Um, you're not feeling like pushing as hard as you can, you know, reaching your normal kind of training intensities. And then increased injuries, you know, soft tissue and bone injuries. And we often see bone stress injuries in runners and, you know, women. So looking at increased bone stress or stress fractures and then also other soft tissue injuries as well. Um, and then the obvious one, you know, is loss of regular periods. For women on the pill, that can be an issue because it's, you know, not an actual period. So the pill can mask um, that symptom and, you know, low mood as well. That's, you know, in women and then in men, the closest equivalent to reds in men of, you know, losing periods is loss of morning erection. And then all those same things, decreased performance, increased injuries, coughs and colds. And, I guess something that is important to talk about is that different athletes will be able to get, will perform better at, you know, how lean they are. We do have this false thinking in sport is lean is always better. I can't remember the name, but it was a very famous marathon runner, American guy who said he was going to get Kenyan lean. That was his goal. And he got Kenyan lean and his performance dropped off a lot. So obviously, you know, individual genetics and you know, individual body composition will influence how lean people can get and how high they can perform. And something that is important to talk about with reds is that you don't need, it's not just lean people. 
if you've got someone who's lost a lot of weight suddenly, they can still have a perfectly normal BMI or even a BMI that could put them in the overweight category. But if they're in that energy deficit, you know, they will develop reds. And we mentioned some of the features that people can look out for when they're developing reds. What are the long-term impacts on health? So I know we mentioned that it can impact performance and that would be in the short and the long term. But just in terms of health itself, what can be the, the problems that people might encounter if they have that deficiency for a long period of time? The main one would be bone health. We know people develop their peak bone density in their 20s. So if someone is having reds in their mid to late 20s, they're unlikely to have improvements in their bone density even if they you know, resume normal periods and normal eating and calorie balance. So, you know, osteoporosis is the big concern and there have been some athletes that have had to, you know, retire due to having reds, some very famous cyclists, some male cyclists have had to retire and, you know, women with recurrent bone injuries. In terms of reproduction, most women will gain a, you know, normal menses if they go back into an energy balance. But, you know, there is a concern for, you know, years and years without um, regular ovulation that it could impact long, in long-term fertility. They would be, you know, the main ones that I would worry about. Um, Also, the other side effect is if it is associated with disordered eating, you know, the psychological impacts of calorie restriction over a long period of time. And I guess the age at which this happens can have quite a big impact on the long-term consequences. So I'm going to assume that if you're younger and an adolescent, it's likely to impact your growth and development in the long term if you have that deficiency during your kind of peak growth phases of life. I'm not a pediatrician, um, I'll avoid that. <laughs> but, you know, but definitely. And even even your performance, you know, if you haven't been able to do that high volume training when you're young, you just won't be able to, you know, progress into your, as an, as an adult athlete, um, also the psychological impacts and really the bone, you know, the bone health impacts in young, you know, especially young women is quite tragic that they've had, you know, reds for years and years and then they've not been able to continue their training into their 20s and they were very promising when they were you know in their adolescence and and then unfortunately weren't able to reach their potential. So just some of the things that can be done to try and reduce this happening I guess individuals are having an awareness of the things to look out for and I think another thing that's again becoming quite a, a hot topic is improving that relationship between the coach and athlete about discussing periods. Periods are normal <laughs> they happen to around 50% of the population. I think the first thing, <laughs> and I've got a bit of insight. My partner is a elite cycling coach, so I hear a lot from him. But is actually just getting this thinking out of people's heads that leaner equals faster, because I think we're so programmed in our society to think thinner is better in terms of you know not just sport. And I think in athletes, we're always comparing ourselves to others. You know, the elite marathon runner I mentioned before, who said he wanted to get Kenyan lean. He's comparing himself to another group of runners and wanting to be like that and thinks that will make him better. So I think really education that Lena is not faster, does not equal faster, is really important. I think acknowledging that just because reds might be common, that doesn't mean it's normal, you know. And I think even I heard about, you know, some female runners look at it's a bit of like a badge of honour, you know, I, I know I'm training really hard because I've lost my period. So you know, trying to educate women about this, that, you know, it's not something that is good for our performance. It's, you know, going to impact your long-term health. And as you said, the discussion between coaches, um, there's still, you know, a lot of period taboo and, you know, shame in our society. It's ridiculous because it's a completely normal physiological function. 
Um, and then also education that people on the pill and that it's not actually a evidence-based management option for REDS and it can actually mask the symptoms. So, yeah, education and cultural changes are important. Yeah, and I think in, in some ways we almost have to be lucky that we've got periods and it's a biomarker of good health and the fact that we don't have a bleed suggests something is wrong. So oh, it, exactly. it's a very easy way to kind of, yeah, see, see how your health is. Um, just moving on to bone health, I guess, out of the context of red S. How does exercise affect bone density and what are the role that hormones are playing in that? Yeah, so as an endocrinology doctor, um, osteoporosis and bone health is one of the things that we look after. Um, Things that are important for bone health are our vitamin D and our calcium levels. And we have some hormones. I won't go into all the details, but um, parathyroid hormone and other, you know, smaller autocrine hormones, which yeah, I won't bore you in the details, but, you know, our hormones control our bone health. And we have cells, kind of osteoclasts and osteoblasts that are constantly breaking down our bones. We often, I think, because we've seen lots of, like, pirate movies where there's, you know, an old bone or skeleton, we think of bones as these kind of dead organs, but they're not. They're constantly remodeling and dynamic organs, and they respond to the load that's put on them. So, you know, if you're putting more load onto the bone, it will remodel to be stronger. Um, And that's why, you know, strength training is so important for runners because those heavy weights stimulate your bones to get stronger, which means you can handle more running load. So things that people can do for their bone health, apart from being in, you know, not in reds, is making sure, you know, vitamin D levels are normal. And I'd say, you know, more than 70. You kind of say more than 50 is normal, but for athletes, and there's been some interesting studies lately showing athletes have you know higher vitamin d requirements than non-athletes so vitamin d getting enough calcium and then you know i can't talk about strength training enough how important it is for our bone health and do you have like a magic number of what you suggest in terms of strength training for runners i think it's something that's quite easily neglected by a lot of runners and often they're doing it to prevent injury or prevent problems in the future but maybe not kind of realizing exactly what they're doing and why yeah i think there was also a little bit like what we were talking about before with leanness, there used to be this false thinking for runners, if I go to the gym, I'll get too bulky and it will slow me down. And ask any bodybuilder or, you know, gym junkie how hard it is to gain, you know, muscle mass and they'll kind of laugh at you if they think, you know, going to the gym twice a week is going to put on muscle, kilograms of muscle. Um, In terms of a specific, you know, number, it's very hard to give blanket advice, um, because every, you know, individual runner might be different. However, we know, you know, at least trying to do weights at least twice a week is advised, um, depending on how much running load you will have. If you're training for an ultra and doing, you know, 100 kilometres plus, you might not be able to push as hard in the gym. But, yeah, exactly, you know, at least twice a week and wanting to try and do some of those heavy weights. Heavy weights is where we see the strength gains and less hypertrophy. So really wanting to load up and four to five sets max and, you know, seeing how heavy you can go. And a lot of runners do suffer with bone stress injuries, um, especially if they're doing kind of long distance, high intensity training. Is that related? I know I know part of that will be related to the energy deficiency, but are there any other contributing factors that can increase the risk of bone stress injuries? And what can we do to try and prevent that? So balancing our like our load and intensity. So I don't know if you've heard of the book 8020. They talk about what um, intensity we should be doing our training at. 
and most, you know, weekend warriors. Is that a term in the UK, weekend warriors? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, You know, most kind of amateur athletes like me, we do most of our training at a kind of middle intensity. We don't do our slow running slow enough. We probably don't do our high intensity running high, you know, fast enough. As we build our volume, we have to accept that we need to lower the intensity. So too much threshold work will increase your risk of a stress fracture. Um, especially, you know, any big jumps in your volume is also going to increase your risk of an injury, not getting in that strength work. And as we discussed before, the, you know, being in a relative energy deficiency. I think we really just don't realize how much calories we're burning when we're increasing our, you know, our intensity of training. And we really need to be better, you know, purposeful eating more, even when we're not hungry. I think we're so programmed to think, you know, it's bad to eat unless we're, you know, hungry. Sometimes you almost need to force the food in and especially we're seeing the increase in plant-based athletes, which, you know, we have evidence that they, you know, perform just as well. But if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, often kind of quite low calorie food. So really being aware that you're getting enough calories in. Sorry, I'm getting back to talking about reds now. I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) Yeah, no. And I think a lot of things do come back to nutrition and other things such as sleep and just generally looking after our body we we train so hard and actually part of the training is the recovery in in all different aspects i lo- i heard a term a while ago you don't get fitter from your training you only get fitter from the training that you recover from you know it's when you're lying in bed at night when your you know muscle cells are adapting to the load that's been placed on them from the training the day before that's when we recover so having you know accepting that we do need time for recovery we need enough sleep we need to eat enough and that's how we get those performance benefits. And, you, you know, you see any pro athlete, they nap in the day. Um, you know, they train really hard. They have a big sleep and eat lots and then, you know, train again. Lovely if we could all have that lifestyle, but unfortunately. <laughs> and we, we spoke about contraceptives and the risk in some ways that that poses with red S as it masks periods because it causes a withdrawal bleed rather than a true period and therefore you can't tell that your period has stopped a contraceptive is also something we should consider in terms of bone stress because i know that certain contraceptives can reduce your bone density over the long term so is there some contraceptives that as athletes we should probably try to avoid yeah we know like the depo injection the three monthly injection um can be bad for bone health so, and but I hardly ever see that prescribed anymore. It's usually only in people that can't tolerate an estrogen based contraception and then they don't want to have the marina put in or they can't remember to take the progesterone only pill. So, I've only seen a few people on that one. Um, but you wouldn't want to be on that one for your bone health. And even if you're not an athlete, I think you know, women in their 20s are optimizing their you know, wanting to reach that peak bone density. So, no to the depot injection unless there's certainly contraception you can have generally steering away from the estrogen based um, contraceptions the ones that stop ovulation is what we want athletes to be doing obviously you know barrier methods of contraception condoms or if you're wanting a hormonal one the marina is probably the best bet because the hormones are thought to be only acting kind of locally in the uterus how it's important to think of the other side effects of contraception. So it's, you know, it's an important um, thing to consider to discuss with your doctor because, you know, individual people's needs will vary. However, in general, and this is what, you know, the British Journal of Sports Medicine advice is, is that if people are wanting a hormonal contraception, it should be the uh, marina. Great. Thank you. Um, That's been really interesting. And hopefully we've kind of covered a few of the the topics in hormones and and their involvement with exercise and sports. Is there anything else you wanted to add or, or to finish on? 
On the topic of hormones, I think it's actually really simple what we need to do for good hormone health. It's, you know, trying to get enough sleep. It's eating enough and then also managing our mental health. We see on the online now all of these made-up diagnoses, you know, adrenal fatigue or HPA axis dysfunction or a hormone imbalance. Like a hormone imbalance is not a diagnosis. You know, we have a very complex system of hormones. You can have a problem with your hormones, but they're not, you know, it's not an imbalance. That doesn't, you know, what does that even mean? So my advice, you know, firstly, for optimizing your hormone health, it's really simple, is sleeping enough, eating enough, managing your mental health. We know psychological stress has you know, terrible impacts on lots of different aspects of our health and, you know, well-being and I think self-care used to be thought of as a little bit fluffy, but we're now really understanding the importance of it. And I think if COVID has taught us anything, it's that we we need to prioritize our, our mental health and well-being. Um, and then if you do have a, you know, a problem, and hormone problems are common, you know, one in 10 women have a thyroid problem, polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, also about one in 10. So, you know, hormone problems are common and I recommend seeing a doctor with a special interest in hormone problems. You know, medicine is so big and broad and unfortunately some people do have bad experiences when they go to their doctor and I think we can't expect a, a GP to know everything about women's health and everything about skin cancers and everything about musculoskeletal problems. So, you know, finding a GP with a special interest. The other thing is, you know, not to ignore problems, you know, don't ignore losing your periods. It's, you know, I had secondary, I had reds for a few years and at the time I was like, oh, this is great. I don't have to worry about getting my period. Um, and then I got some bone stress injuries and, you know, I think that sparked, what sparked my interest. So not sitting in the dark, not being in denial because it will always catch up. We didn't really talk about how men can optimize their kind of hormone health, but it's the same things, looking after our bodies, doing some heavy weight training, um, you know, and not ignoring things that don't seem right and not being embarrassed to talk to your doctor if something's not right because we've heard it all before. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the, the time out to share all of that information. So I think I rabbited it on a little bit. I'm passionate about this topic. Hopefully everyone that listens is also passionate about this topic. So a big thank you to Izzy for sharing her knowledge on some really important topics, topics that she is particularly passionate about, as she mentioned. And therefore, if you do want to find out more about any of the things we discussed, I can definitely recommend finding Izzy on Instagram. You can find her by searching Dr. Izzy K. Smith, and you can also visit her website, drizzysmith.com. I've got a few more episodes on running and health lined up. So to keep up to date with those, you can find me on Instagram by searching Marathon Medic, or you can visit my website, www.marathonmedic.com. Thanks for listening. Oh.